welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Hello and welcome back. It always gives me such joy to say those that phrase, hello and welcome back, because it is a privilege, I know, to have a conversation directly in your ears. So many of you reach out to me and we continue the conversation offline on topics that I know by just being a part of the conversation allows for other ideas, allows for and ideas and diversity of ideas is which something that I always advocate is the reason why we're going to see change and the reason why we're going to leave a better country, better institutions for our kids. June marks the anniversary of Title IX. Title IX, the history of Title IX, if you don't know, Title IX is a part of the Education Amendments of 1972. And according to the Women's Sports Foundation and other research that I've done, I wanted to dedicate this episode to either introducing or reintroducing to you to the long, rich history of Title IX, what it was intended to do, what it has done, and we'll spend the next couple of episodes really looking at Title IX and how this piece of legislation in so many ways is a mirror as to what was going on in our culture in the 1970s. So many very brave individuals, men and women, advocates, activists, were asking questions why. That's how I start Anytime I'm thinking about change, I ask why, why is it like this? Why does it have to be like this? Who else should be included so that there can be a difference? And why is there suffering? Title IX is a response to frustration and suffering that was going on within sport, within activity, within access. It's more than just college sports. And we know that at its root, the Civil Rights Act, Title IX in education, reforms that we saw that allowed for greater access to schools is really, really what we were asking for. And by we, I include myself in this Title IX legislation, really what most pieces of legislation that are opening up the door to other individuals, at the root of it, people are asking for a chance. They're asking for opportunity. They're asking for America to hold true to its promise that was given. It wasn't something that was 
necessarily solicited. It was an offer that was made that individuals in this country, that they be allowed to live the fullest life, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. That was the offer. The offer was accepted. And now you have these pieces of legislation that are challenging every spare, every space that is refusing to honor that offer is intentionally or because of maybe implicit bias, explicit and implicit bias are refusing to honor that offer and are breaching that contract that was given. That's what in response Title IX was doing. So a brief history, because this is a month that we're celebrating it. So according to the Women's Foundation, as I was saying, some other research, in June 23, 1972, Title IX of the Education Act, it was enacted by Congress, was signed into law by President Richard Nixon. And the essence of this act, it was an attempt to prohibit sexual discrimination in any educational program or activity that receives federal financial aid. Representatives Patsy Mink, Edith Green, and Birch Baugh are remembered for sponsoring the bill and advancing this piece of legislation. Now, over about two years later in 1974, you have a senator by the name of John Tower who proposes the Tower Amendment, which was an attempt to push back on what Title IX was seeking to do. Again, really seeking to offer opportunity and a chance to ensure that we live up to the offer that was made for access and opportunity to all. Senator John Tower said, well, wait a minute, let's exempt Title IX from those sports that he deemed to be revenue producing. You see where this is going, right? Later, a couple of months later, in July of 1974, the spirit of Senator Tower's amendment, it failed. But you have Senator Jacob Javis submit an amendment which was directing the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to issue regulations that provide for, and it's quoted, reasonable provisions considering the nature of the particular sport. Again, another attempt to move the goalposts, so to speak, and change the promise that was made for access and opportunity for all. Senator Javis argued that events and uniform expenditures for sports that drew larger crowds or had more expensive equipment, that they don't have to have matched funding or similar sports. So if you had, for example, men's basketball because it drew larger crowds or the equipment was more expensive, you didn't have to match that under Title IX to a comparable women's sport. In a year later, in 75, President Gerald Ford signed the final version of Title IX, and it included Senator Javis' proposed athletic regulation. And so that was included in that. It goes on, you have this back and forth over this, the next couple of years. In 1975, Representative O'Hare introduced a bill to amend Title IX. And this bill would propose that sports revenue, that it first be used to offset the cost of a support. And then only 
wants those costs for a particular sport, and they're contemplating a male sport. So we pay for all of the sports that are within a male collegiate sport. And after that's been offset, then whatever's left over can be used. In 1976, the NCAA files a lawsuit that challenges the legality of Title IX. Two years later, in 1978, that lawsuit was dismissed. Also in 78, July of 78. So in that summer, that was the final deadline for high schools and colleges to comply with Title IX athletic requirements. So many times what happens, people will stand around in their chair and they'll applaud when legislation is passed. The public hears that something good has being, is being done. In 1972, that's when this was enacted. But if we as a populace, as voters, do not pay attention to the laws that are providing opportunity and access to larger groups and to other individuals, then we'll literally drop the ball. Because you see that it's not until 1978, so years after we're celebrating its actual enactment, that the deadline for compliance, it was, this happened with, I can go all the way back, let's give it an example of emancipation legislation that passed outlawing slavery, which did not take effect immediately. Although there was much celebration or much, you know, violence and remorse, depending on if you supported or did not support slavery, but it wasn't enforced, enacted, and slavery took on several different iterations and forms even to this day. So it continues in so many respects. Similarly, in the desegregation of schools and the equality of schools. We often look to Brown v. Board and we celebrate that. But if you look very closely, you see that these laws and deadlines for enacting these laws didn't take place immediately with the stroke of a president's pen. Going on in, now, as you can expect, there is pushback. Anytime that you are asking for individuals to cede power and to open up opportunity to others, there's going to be challenges. In September of 1988, in the case of Hoffer versus Temple University Title IX Athletics, that was a lawsuit that was ultimately, after several rounds of litigation, several phases, I should say, of litigation, the plaintiff female athletes, they won their demand for the athletic department at Temple University to have better equality, stronger and newer equality for female athlete budgets, scholarships, recruitment, and participation. Looking at that case, and that was a Pennsylvania case from 1988, it was a class action. And in the class action, the plaintiffs, the female athletes were alleging unlawful gender discrimination in Temple University intercollegiate athletic programs. The plaintiffs who were part of that class, they were current women students at Temple who participate or were deterred from participating because of sexual discrimination in the Temple's intercollegiate athletic program. As part of the claims by the female athletes, some of the basic claims that they were saying, 
Temple affords women students fewer opportunities to compete. There's that word that I said a moment ago. That is what these laws are put in place for because we contemplated these institutions to work for all. What we know is happening, and I'll say this every episode, I don't care if we're talking about Title IX or college sports, the judicial system, extracting out of that the criminal justice system, what we have are a restriction by the same voices, the same thinking, the same authority figures. We have a restriction on opportunity. So you see the female athletes here in our discussion today, they are arguing before the court that they are being offered fewer opportunities to compete in intercollegiate sports. They also are alleging a disparity in resources that are allocated to the men and the women's athletic program, and a disparity in the financial aid for male and female athletes. The women are claiming that the treatment of women student athletes violates a number of federal and state laws in this lawsuit, the 14th Amendment, the Pennsylvania Equal Rights Amendment, and also, which would have been new the first time that, or one of the first cases to be litigated, that it was a violation of the rights that were given under Title IX of the Educational Act of 1972. The, I really like this case, actually. It shows you a look back in 1988 of some of the same arguments that you will see in 2019, 2022. These are not new arguments. It is the same frustrating and exhausting arguments that you'll see over and over again. So it's interesting as a lawyer to look at these and to say, wow, we're still talking about this. Yes, this is happening again. Yes, it's been repackaged, repurposed, and it's still not being realized that simple concept of opportunities to compete. Let me just read from you as enunciated by the plaintiffs a little bit more. This is under the court's opinion and it's subtitled Opportunities to Compete. It says that the plaintiffs in their complaint, the plaintiffs are saying, despite the fact that Temple's student body is approximately 50% female, approximately one third of the participants in Temple's intercollegiate program are women. And it goes on to say there's different exhibits that were attached. And they are essentially asking why this is. If we have a student body, why don't we have a more representative sporting inter program that represents both male and female? And the opinion goes on and each side lays out why that is. On behalf of the university, their response under this concept of failure to offer opportunity to their female athletes, the defendants claim that the plaintiffs have failed to establish that the participation rate is evidence of gender discrimination. Instead, the university says that general student population really doesn't constitute a relevant pool. Temple says that the relevant pool consists of potential students who possess the special abilities and interests to compete in sport at Division I. So they're in essence saying, look, you have it all wrong, female athletes. Don't look at the amount of women that are in within the university population. 
Don't even look at the disparity of resources. Don't look at the disparity in the recruitment or scholarship opportunities. It really is about women don't want to participate at the same rate as men. So that's one of the arguments that was advanced by this argument in 1988 and that continues to be argued today. One more thing in 1988 that the litigants, the female litigants, are saying that Temple has not and does not provide an adequate number of coaches or assistant coaches for the women's team, and that instead it devotes substantially more resources to coaching staff for the men's team. Temple, in response to that, during this court case, says that as the women teams outperform the men's, there is no direct correlation between the success of a particular team and the salaries and benefits paid to a team's coach or the number of coaches assigned to a team. Temple is saying, you have it wrong again, female athletes. Don't look at how much we are providing a greater coaching staff to the male sports or do not look at the salaries that we're paying to male coaches. Really, there's no correlation. You can't draw a causal link that if you have in the male sports at Temple, if you have a coach making, let's say it's 1988, let's just draw a number. If you have a coach making 100000 for a male sport and you have a female coach getting 25000 there's not going to be a correlation between how the team performs. I would love to have some coaches speak directly to that, whether you believe that there's no correlation between the staffing amounts and the salaries and the performance, the opportunities to perform and the rate, which, you know, fast forwarding, we're, we're going, well, you know what? I, I have something to share because I love this. I was at a conference at the Drake Group Symposium in Washington, D.C. in May, and it crystallizes the disparity and what the female, these temple class action female athletes were saying in 1988. And we'll fast forward to 2021. Before I get to that, so just a little bit more on the history of Title IX, because this is this episode is going to lay the foundation this month as we focus on Title IX, as we focus on this institution and the background and what has been made, what changes are coming and what we can do. So let's go forward to now in the history of Title IX. So that was one of the first early court decisions. And then you have in 1992, there was the NCAA. It completed and published what many consider to be a landmark gender equality study of its Division I member institutions. And that study, it found significant disparities in participation rates and funding between the men and women's athletic program. It showed that fewer than 50% of women teams have female head coaches and just 1% of male teams. So we see that in 1988, the disparities as enunciated by the court. In 1992, 
The NCAA does its own audit of its D1 member institutions. It further highlights the disparities, saying, hey, we examined the problem. The problem is here. We haven't gotten to the root cause. Well, I told you the root cause. The root cause at the top of the, this episode is the breach in the contract. A right was given at the establishment of an institution. Here we have an educational and sporting institution that opportunity would be allowed a diversity in gender would be allowed. We have a breach in that by in that offer by an institution. And then you have attempts to cure the breach by enacting legislation in June of 1972. And the frustrating thing that we have is that as we all grow up under these pieces of legislation, many times in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, were just a watershed time for acts, for movements, for marches, for speaking out against so many of our institutions that are breaching their promise and their contract made to the populace. And in response, you have Title IX. So the frustration is, why? Why are we not fulfilling our promise? Why is there not being an acknowledgement and a remedy to the breach in the contract? And it's because the lack of acknowledgement that a breach has even happened. It's been a failure for those of positions of authority to want to provide opportunity, to want to share. And that's simply what it is. It seems almost elementary. Share, what do we learn? We learned that in kindergarten. Some of us didn't learn that lesson or think that they didn't. it didn't apply to them. You see with Senator Towers' attempt to move the goalposts that exempt Title IX, that's why we're frustrated when our institutions are not working because individuals of authority, failure to share, they rewrite the rules. Just when you think you're about to get the opportunity that was promised to you, you have a pulling back, you have an exception, you have a rewriting of the rules. So fast forward to after the NCAA publishes their study confirming what the court and what the female plaintiffs in Temple already knew. In 1994, Senator Cal Mosley-Braun, the first Black female senator from the state of Illinois, and Representative Collins, they sponsor the Equality in Athletics Disclosure Act. It required that any co-educational institution of higher learning that participates in any federal student financial aid program and that sponsors an intercollegiate athletic program has to disclose information concerning the athlete, the athletic program. Under this act, the programs have to submit annual reports, and it was a way to measure and to ensure by this mandated reporting that colleges that receive financial aid and have intercollegiate programming, that they were using funds to provide opportunity and access to female athletes under Title IX. At this time in 1994, that was an exciting time for me because I was actually, side note, working on Capitol Hill and had the opportunity to meet Senator Carol Mosley Braun it was such a proud moment. It was such an exciting moment to be on the Hill. She won the election. It was in direct response. She 
and other female senators. It was the most female senators at that time with that class in response to what happened with the Clarence Thomas hearing. So that just takes me down memory lane a little bit. With continuing with the history of Title IX, in December of 2001, the Communities for Equality versus Michigan High School Athletics Association, that was a decision that held that state athlete associations liable under Title IX, the Equal Protection Clause, and the Michigan state laws for discriminating. It held them liable for discriminating against girls by forcing six girls sports teams, but no boys teams, to compete in what was considered non-traditional or disadvantageous seasons. So that was another ruling that supported and highlighted the lack of opportunity, the bias, and going out of your way, rewriting the rules. So to ensure that for whatever reason, female athletes are disadvantaged. I do know that there's nuances. And whenever you think about trying to cure systemic failures, when you're looking at root causes of discrimination, if you sit and you think and you listen, really genuinely listen to what your opposing side is saying, and you try to understand, which in my career has been pivotal to helping me advance, helping me become a better litigator, when you really try to understand what's saying. So let's take, for example, you're, you know, you're before the court, you're in an oral argument, you're the, the attorneys for the other side, give their argument, lay out their position. The court asks questions. You can only really answer those questions, not if you're set and ready to just only reiterate your way of thinking. You have to be fluid enough. You have to be open enough to listen to the concerns and the fears and the position and we'll just use it just for sake of, you know, the clarity, the opponent, you have to be willing to listen and then distill what questions and what concerns and ultimately what are the fears of the other side and what are the positions that the court wants you to really answer. And that's exactly what we have to do when we're looking at how to address the failures that Title IX was seeking to address. What is it about the closing off and the refusal to provide opportunity to female athletes that is causing so much resistance on the part of, it could be a university, it could be legislators, it could be athletic departments or coaches. What is the fear that's underlying their argument? It would seem that sometimes these arguments would make sense. For example, in the case that we talked about before with Temple University or with Senator Towers' amendment, a lot of the D1 or D2 sports, the bigger sports, football, basketball, the equipment is more. They are generating more revenues. There's no way we can then mirror and mimic and provide the same facilities for female athletes. It's just not doable. It's just not feasible. Or you have the argument, female athletes aren't interested in these sports. 
They're not drawing the same crowds. There's no demand for them. Therefore, they should be exempt from the requirements of Title IX. So you have so many of these arguments. It would seem to make the opponent's position nuanced and reasonable. But if you go to the essence of it, what anyone anywhere is asking, and especially as we're talking about college sports, they're asking for an opportunity in sport. Sports, so important. I don't have to tell you the listeners. We know it's important. And they're asking for when you have a program that that program not have blaring disparities and part of the argument by the university in the case we were talking about in 1988 was that the discrimination was not intentional. Sometimes you can have biases that are so reckless that they are intentional. That brings me to one of the come forward even more to 2021, the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament and the Oregon Ducks women's basketball team and one of their star players, Sedona Price. Miss Price recorded a TikTok video that went viral. And if you haven't already seen it, just go on to TikTok, go online and just Google Sedona Price. In that video, what she captured <laughs> was a winning argument that shuts down any claim that you can have when it relates to discrimination or there not being the ability, there not being the resources to fund certain women collegiate programs. In that video, what she showed is that the women's facilities at the tournament, you can't even use words like they were woefully inadequate. It was, it was a joke. It was a joke where you'd say, oh, it wasn't intentional. That was intentional because it was so reckless. And she recorded it because when she and other female athletes had complained about the facilities for the women's basketball, the NCAA came back and said, oh, well, there's a lack of space. There's not the ability to put in the same weight room, the same nutrition and food for the female athletes. So that video absolutely debunked it. And it was just a huge shame on you, to the, not only to the NCAA, but to any athletic department that would claim that. What, and go and look at the video. And what Ms. Price said at the end of the video was, if you aren't upset about this problem, then you are part of the problem. And again, just a brief visual. You see these huge facilities. It looks, you know, like the a stadium, you know, the back area of a stadium. And the weight rack was, you know, maybe 10 weights, you know, handheld weights that you would have in your garage or some teenager would have in their room versus when you then, she then put her camera, the men's side was filled with squat benches and pull-ups and just a whole plethora. The NCAA had said that there wasn't space. Then she panned her camera over and you saw empty square footage of maybe just a couple of folding chairs on the men's side. And it, it went viral. Good for Sedona. She now has a name, image, and likeness deal, an NIL deal with the beverage company Riff. So what she did was really, it just shows that 
why we continue to need Title IX, why it's important. And it also shows in our history that the access and the opportunity is still not being afforded to female athletes. Just a side note that in the conference that I attended with the Drake Group, Sedona Price actually received the 2022 Presidential Award by that group, honoring an extraordinary contribution by an individual who has helped advance the integrity of intercollegiate athletes. I really like that group. I'm involved in it. If you care about college sports from either an institutional side, whether you're with an athletic department, you're a coach, or you're a player, go on and join up, follow that group. They have really great trainings. They have individuals who really care about the integrity of college sports. As I wrap up our discussion on the history of Title IX, its enactment, how it's evolved over the years, and what we see now still going on via Sedona Price's video is a common theme and a common thread that we'll see. And in our next episode, what we'll talk about is we'll focus on how this law has been applied in different court cases and on an individual level, how it's impacted positively female athletes. So we'll look at that and we'll circle back and talk about what changes are coming. We'll talk about how this law now has to expand itself for the inclusion, or some might argue the exclusion of transgender athletes. So that's coming in this episode. We're all month long in June. We celebrate the Title IX legislation of 1972. As always, it's a pleasure speaking with you. And until next time, be well. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.